If you are a guest, you picked a great date to come. I've been working on this lesson for 51 weeks, and uh, so I'm really glad you're here. No, but seriously, if you are a guest, I want to encourage you to come back next week uh, whenever Jared takes back over uh, and continues in his series. My name is Josh Hardcastle. I'm the high school minister here at Southern Hills, and today is Senior Sunday. This is a day where we honor seniors who've been a part of our student ministry, and for some, a part of this church their entire lives. And before we get into today's uh, sermon, there's something I've been wanting to do ever since uh, I got here. So if you'll just give me about 20 seconds to do something real quick. remember playing Super Mario growing up at my friend's house. How many of y'all played the original Super Nintendo Mario? You remember back in 1983 whenever it first came out. Uh, But then I also remember whenever Mario became 3D and and he uh, came on in the Nintendo 64. My all-time favorite Mario game is Super Mario Kart. Uh, I love playing it. And now we have the ability to control Mario with our hands or take him uh, on, on the go wherever we want to. And just like Mario has come a long way since 1983, a lot of our seniors have gone through some changes as well. And so today, I'd like to take us down a a quick stroll down memory lane in the world of 8-bit graphics. Um, And just a side note, next time you talk to Stephen Corbett, make sure you give him a big bro hug for me because he did a really good job uh, creating these graphics. But uh, I need to explain a few terms real quick that I'm going to be using. Whenever I use the term coins... Uh, As we go through each of these levels, these are opportunities and and little deposits of love, affirmation, and intentionality that parents can both collect and sometimes lose. The evil boss is just what it sounds like. It's the big bad of each level. And then Easter eggs. These are are something unexpected that only true fans recognize. And parents, you're the true fans of your kids. Uh, These could also be extra opportunities for parents to earn additional coins. You just have to be looking for them Uh, and say yes when they come along. So are you ready? Okay, level one. This is the zero to one year level. Uh, Collecting and maintaining coins is really easy at this level. You know, the baby loves you. They need you. They depend on you. Um, And also in this level, you should just go ahead and expect on being late everywhere you go. Uh, The evil boss in this level are smells. (laughs) Both theirs and yours, because if you're in this level, you know if you had a choice between sleeping and showering, you're going to pick sleeping. And the Easter egg in this level is just real simple. The, the baby just needs smiles and cuddles. Level two, this is the two to four-year-old level. Collecting coins is still pretty easy, but now you have to learn to hold on to them. This is the I can do that phase. And I have two little boys that they, they, every chance they get, they let me know that they can do that. And whenever I say, no, I don't think you can do that, they prove to me that they can do that. This is also the, the, the phase or level where the question why comes up again and again. And your child is leveling up, but they still need lots of confidence in their new skills that they're learning. And playtime becomes more creative and fun. They start to play with Legos and action figures and Barbie dolls, and they begin to create worlds in their minds. The evil boss in this level, if you're in this level, you know it, is potty training. And the Easter egg in this one, the challenge I have for parents is to build a pillow fort. Be creative. Uh, Enter into their world. Help, Help them develop a new world as you learn more about their world. 
Level three, this is the five to seven-year-old level. The levels are getting harder. Uh, reaching coins becomes more difficult. School is introduced in this level. Uh, their language has leveled up as well, sometimes for the good and the bad, the filtered and unfiltered. Uh, this is the phase where kids also begin to notice more differences between them and other kids. The evil boss in this level is basic math, because let's be honest, they come home with these homework assignments that we learned in middle school and high school, and they're already learning it in first and second grade. The Easter egg in this one, it's, it's kind of silly again, but have dance parties. Show them a silly side that you can be silly and they can be silly together. And remind them that you love them for them, not just for what they do. Level four, this is the eight to ten year old level. Uh, this is where they have more friends to play with. This tribe mentality begins to develop. Peer approval is going to skyrocket. There's more power-ups to collect, which translates to more energy. Parents will begin to notice their grocery bill growing and growing. The evil boss in this level, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, are phones. Uh, and this attitude or idea that um, everyone else has it or everyone else gets to do it. The Easter egg, the challenge in this level for parents is to know their friends' names. Because friends matter a lot in this phase and in this level. Level 5, middle school, if you're not here yet, get ready and good luck. Um, now, honestly, this level for middle school looks a little too easy, so let's go to what it really looks like. It's a lot darker. There's more questions. The, the coins are just impossible to get, and, and you're just really having a challenge to get there. But there are a lot of changes that begin to take place. Emotions begin attacking your coin count. And, and there are a lot of changes physically. In one year, a kid could grow 3 to 4 inches and gain 10 to 15 pounds. Uh, there are a lot of changes emotionally. There's going to be a lot of tears, both theirs and yours. Changes mentally, you're, you're going to be really surprised at how smart your middle schooler actually is. And changes spiritually. Middle schoolers, they want to answer the question, who am I? And so they need parents to acknowledge their process and their uniqueness. And honestly, this is one of the harder levels, but this is also one of the levels where they need parents the most. The evil boss in this level is puberty. <clears throat> and the Easter egg for parents, give them important tasks. Because kids aren't going to feel important until you give them something important to do. And finally, the last level we're going to talk about today is the high school level, level six. Old things begin to fade. Family, traditions, friends, they begin to, to pass and new things begin to appear. The levels are not necessarily harder, just a little bit more complicated. High school students, they want to know the answers to the questions of where do I belong? Why should I believe you? How can I matter? And what will I do? And you have to get creative on how to obtain and, and, and maintain uh, your coins, both theirs and yours. The evil boss is future plans because they're always being asked, you know, what's next? Where are you going to college? Well, if you're not going to college, what are you going to do then? And the Easter egg for parents, do something that they think is fun and give them control of their own decisions, even if you disagree, because high schoolers are motivated by freedom. Okay, everybody good? Take a deep breath. I know we kind of went through a lot, but we're going to keep going. So let me ask you this question. What would it look like for us to fight for the heart of the next generation? Because what I want you to remember today is that there's a big difference in fighting for your family and with your family. Communication styles are going to change throughout the, the levels. And so we as parents and influencers, we have to learn to speak their language. Uh, that's one of the critical things for us to learn to do when we say yes to the next generation. So what is your communication style? Is it your way or the highway? Are you a good listener and a good question asker? 
Uh, do you think only about what you're going to say even while they're talking? This is something I personally struggle with where I'm in a conversation with somebody and all I can think about is the next thing that I'm going to say and then I miss what they're trying to say. Do you give them space to have their own thoughts and opinions? Have you considered that their brain works differently from yours and they need to keep processing what you've already processed? Carrie Newhoff says, if you want a kid to know they matter, then it matters what words you use when you talk to them and about them. The words that you use can set them up to feel significant, valued, and unique. One of my boys has been particularly challenging lately. I won't tell you which one it is. But the other day we were in the kitchen and he was climbing up on the cabinets and Whitney said, Knox, that's not a cabinet for climbing. And my four-year-old looks back at her and says, you're not a cabinet for climbing. I need someone to tell me how to parent whenever you're trying not to laugh at the same time. Um, and he didn't get in trouble for that because it was funny. But when Knox does get in trouble, uh, he has to go to timeout because uh, he's a people person. And, and timeout is like the worst possible thing for him uh, because we're in the other room and he thinks we're having like a party that started immediately after he got sent to his room. Um, and so this is like the worst possible scenario for him. But whenever it's time for him to be done with timeout, I like to go and sit down with him and communicate two things. I'll say, number one, hey, buddy, you made a bad mistake, but that doesn't make you a bad kid. And number two, I'll say, hey, I love you, and there's nothing you can do that will ever change that. Reggie Joyner reminds us sometimes it's easy to forget that you can win the argument and force the right behavior, but lose the heart in the process. For us as parents or people who love students, when a rule is broken, it creates an opportunity for us to prove our love. And sometimes the best thing for us to do that we can do for the next generation is to show up when they mess up. And we have some of the most amazing people who do show up on a weekly basis um, with our middle school and high school students. Each and every week, they show up and invest in them and walk alongside of them in their faith. So I'm going to ask all of our current small group leaders to go ahead and stand up. In January of 2017, We've had over 40 people who have said yes to our middle schoolers and high school students uh, on a weekly basis. They've said yes to crazy things like dressing up for trunk of treats, late night unexpected phone calls, relationship drama, teenage apathy, camp slip and slides. Thank you, Todd Mullins. Growing pains, axe body spray, sleeping on the ground in the mountains, random tangents on which Avenger is actually the best and listening to stories that make no sense and don't connect at all in the small group. But they've also said yes to things like serving alongside the next generation in the mountains and in the city or in another country. They've said yes to listening to the hearts and minds of God's sons and daughters. They've said yes to growing with their students as they have doubts and frustrations in their faith. And they've said yes to witnessing God's gifts that he has given the next generation to help the current generation. Y'all go ahead and be seated. Thank you. Friends, I've got to tell you, one of the best things we can do for the next generation is to invite them and give them a seat at the table of my generation and your generation. Because when we learn to listen to their voices, we'll realize that God has some incredible things in store for the future of his church. And he's doing some incredible things through them in the church right now. Two weeks ago, I got to sit down with some of our leaders in our student ministry, and we were talking about how can we influence the, the younger high schoolers and the middle schoolers that are coming up behind us? How can we help them become the best version of themselves? And as we were talking, we decided the way that we can do that is to become the best version of ourselves. 
And I want to share some of these things with you that they talked about uh, that really just blew, blew me out of the water. They said, we can show them someone who cares just by hanging out with them and listening to them. When it comes to influencing the next generation, the people coming up behind us, the students coming up, we could have patience with them, especially the ones that are difficult or annoying. Another one said, I, I should get outside my comfort zone and go talk to them. I need to learn to be uncomfortable. I need to learn to be okay with being uncomfortable. And the last one said, hey, when it comes to influencing the middle schoolers and younger high schoolers, we can find their individual uniqueness and praise that because everyone is different and everyone has gifts to offer. Church, what if we all adopted that attitude? What if as, we, as, we, as we're reading these things and we're thinking about the people who are coming up behind us, the generations behind us, we looked out around the church and said, hey, there's a younger family over there that I don't know. And we can show them someone who cares just by hanging out with them and listening to them. There's some difficult people in this church. If you didn't know that, now you do. Um, but we can have patience with them, especially the ones that are different or annoying, Right? And when it comes to individual uniqueness, we can find those and speak into those gifts and find people who, who have a unique gift because everyone is different and everyone has something to offer. Today, we're going to be spending some time talking about this guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, he knew the effect that the generations could have on one another. When the walls of Jerusalem were torn down, he didn't go out and find the biggest, strongest guys to help rebuild, but he did something that changed the course of the history of Israel forever. And so I'm going to catch us up a little bit uh, just so we can uh, get to the point in the story that I'm going to talk about today, the story of Nehemiah. In 2 Chronicles 36, we find the people of Israel are forced into captivity and led to Babylon. The Jerusalem is destroyed and left in ruins. And after some time in exile, word gets back to Nehemiah that things are not going well uh, for the people of Israel. And eventually God's people are allowed to return in waves to Jerusalem by King Cyrus of Persia. And then we've got Nehemiah, who's cupbearer to the king. He has influence with the king, who's allowed to go back to Jerusalem and begin to mobilize people to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the community of Israel. And along the way, a guy named Sambalat, who's the enemy of the story, he hears about this and does some mobilizing of his own, trying to keep this from happening. And this brings us to the story, the part of the story I want to focus on today. You know, this construction project was going to take a while, and the people knew it. And if you've ever worked outside for a long time, uh, sweating and things are just going really, really slow, you know that people start to get tired and they start to get hungry and frustrated. And the enemy, Sambalat, he knew, just like the enemy that we fight every single day knows, that when morale is down, when you lower your defenses, you're more vulnerable for attacks. And he knew that if people were fighting with each other, that they would be weak. So Nehemiah shakes things up. He does something that changed the game for the people of Israel. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 13, it says, So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed area. I stationed the people to stand guard alone. Nope, that's not what it says. To stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. And then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah said, fight for your families, Israel. Because what Nehemiah does is he reorganizes the nation of Israel who's there by posting families alongside of each other. And all of a sudden, 
things change. Now there's not some faceless person that they're rebuilding the wall for. Now there's not some unknown person that they're trying to protect. These are their sons and their daughters. These are their families that they're fighting for. And he also makes the mission and vision for the whole community of Israel, not just for the families that have a mom and dad and two kids and a dog. Nehemiah knows that if he can change the hearts of the people to fight for their families and for the next generation, they can't lose. What Nehemiah knew and what he does is that he makes the vision personal. Because there's something that changes in your heart when the cause you're fighting for wears the face of your son and daughter. And I fully believe that no one on this earth has more potential to influence the faith of the next generation like the parents who fight to champion their kids' faith every single day. And if you notice in the story, Nehemiah doesn't make himself the hero. By stationing the families together, he makes the parents the leaders and the heroes of the story. And parents, if you want to change the course of your family's history, learn to fight for them, not with them. In Deuteronomy 6, 20, it talks about, you know, in the future when, when the children ask their parents about the things God has given them and ask them, they're supposed to tell the story of God's goodness and faithfulness. And at the time, all these people knew in this story of Nehemiah was the story of the Exodus, of, of, of them being led out of captivity. They didn't know that the story was going to continue to be written. Now, I want you to imagine for a second what those kids who watched their parents with a sword in one hand and a tool to rebuild in the other told their kids about what God did through their parents for them. How big of an impact do you think that that had on those kids' lives for them to witness their parents fighting for the heart of the next generation? And what we have to remember is that these parents weren't rebuilding only for themselves. They were rebuilding the city for the future generations, for their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids. And wedged in this story is one of the cool uh, things that I was that I found as I was studying for this. If you look at Nehemiah chapter seven, verse six, verses six and seven, the author is he's listing out the exiles that are returning back to Jerusalem, and one of the leaders that returned, his name is highlighted. His name was Zerubbabel. Everybody say Zerubbabel. It's just fun to say. Now, if you go over to Matthew's genealogy, Zerubbabel is listed as the great 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 grandfather. Of Jesus. This man, Zerubbabel, a father himself, trying to lead and fight for the hearts of the next generation, was fighting for the heart of Jesus. And you never know the impact you could have when you set your heart to fight for the heart of your children's future. Now, I never got to meet my great grandfather, Jack Hardcastle, that my, my dad was named after. But he was a preacher and a missionary. Uh, he spoke at lectureships all over the country uh, in the 1950s from Pepperdine to Florida Christian. Uh, my dad called him the coast-to-coast preacher. Um, and one of his famous stories took place at the Florida Christian lectureships. He was normally asked to speak, to be one of the like, scholarly, scholarly speakers from the stage. But this particular year and this particular conference, he was not asked to come up on the stage. You see, my great-grandfather was known for speaking out against racism. And at this point, this was the, the hot topic to discuss, but more so on the justification of attitude and hearts that were not of Jesus. So in the middle of this talk, he stood up and began debating with the scholars on stage from the audience. And it gets to the point where people are so interested in what he's saying from the audience that they bring him a microphone so that he can continue to, to talk with these men up on stage. 
And what he did was that uh, he began to quote and use scriptures in an honest and truthful way, speaking out against racism that challenged the scriptures that they were twisting to justify their means. See, my great-grandfather's heart was for the people who didn't have a voice at the time. Fast forward to his son, Pat Hardcastle, my grandfather. Um, He followed in his father's footsteps. He became a preacher. And when he retired from preaching, he took over the Christian Service Center in Oklahoma City. And every single day, he got to minister to homeless people and to impoverished people. And he got to love them with his heart and with the heart of Jesus. And the people that were forgotten, because his heart was also for the people who didn't have a voice at the time. And then eventually, my father, Jack Hardcastle, he also followed the path of a minister and stepped into youth ministry. And after years of youth ministry, he followed God's guidance into family ministry. And then in addition to family ministry, he started a program at one of the prisons here in Abilene called Inside Out Dads. And every week of this series, he would show up at the prison and speak life into these men and teach them what it looks like to be a father, even though they can't be there for their kids in the way that they would want to be. Some of these men eventually were released and were able to be better fathers once they were out of prison. And I've had the privilege of attending one of the graduation ceremonies. And the impact is tremendous. These men that society has cast out and in some cases forgotten have found hope and purpose inside the prison walls so that when they leave, they have that same hope and purpose and a new sense of, uh, of fatherhood that they go home and take to their families. See, my father's heart was for the people who didn't have a voice at the time. And here I am, a fourth generation minister who, who working with students. And, and I got to tell you, I love my job. Because every day and every week, I get to have a voice with students. I get to talk to them. I get to fight for them. And and I just get to love on students in a way that Jesus would. And and one of my favorite programs um, is Celebrate Recovery. Because at Celebrate Recovery, it's where real, authentic, raw, and imperfect people gather together to find grace from Jesus Christ. And, And that's what we're fighting for. That's what Holly and I are fighting for in our student ministry. We want to fight for a place Uh, where students who feel unloved can find Jesus. We want to fight for a place where students who just don't seem to fit in can belong. We want to fight for a place where students who who don't feel like they have a voice can speak life and truth into one another and have that spoken into them as well. And for my great-grandfather down to me and for me down to the other generations after me, you never know the impact you could have when you set your heart to fight for the heart of your children's future. The truth is, tomorrow's Monday, and you have two options. You can listen and and try to change, try to find ways to change, or you can look for opportunities and act and be changed. And if you're like me, it's hard for me just to sit back and listen and feel like, okay, now I've got it. My heart's automatically changed. Like, I need someone to say, here's how to do what you're asking me to do. So, church, here's how to do what I'm asking you to do. Got three things for you, okay? The first one, in all your conversations this week, whether it's with your family, a coworker, whatever, in all your conversations, seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Because there's nothing that says, I'm fighting for your heart and I'm fighting for our relationship, like listening and being a good question asker. And I think what we can do for the next generation is to feel like, give them a voice with our generation. The next thing I want you to do is choose one word that describes your child and speak into that word every night for the next week. Imagine as your child is going to bed, you go into the room and say, hey, Knox, buddy, you're a really joyful person. And I think God has given you that gift of joy because when you're around people 
people love to, to just be around you because of the joy that you have. And so what would it look like for you to pick a word that you feel like describes your kid and speak into that? How big of an impact do you think that that would have on their lives? Because they're bombarded by so many messages in this world and so many things that are saying, hey, this is how you need to act. This is how you need to feel. But what if we, on a consistent basis, spoke truth and life and grace and spoke Jesus into them? You know what's gonna happen? They're gonna start to believe it. And the final thing I want you to do is share your faith story. Share your faith story with your kids. There's a reason Moses told the people in Deuteronomy Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Remember that this story is always growing. Just like the story of Israel took over a thousand years to tell, it was just the beginning. And your story is a part of God's story in 2019. I think sometimes we forget to show our kids that we are imperfect sons and daughters of God and we need Jesus and we need his grace just as much. So as you think about sharing your story, reflect on what God has done for you and spend some time sharing that with them this week. I want to invite our current senior small group leaders up to the stage right now. Um, these couples have poured out their hearts and souls uh, into their seniors, and, and they've showed up week after week for the past two and a half years and sat through many conversations and some quiet times with their seniors. Um, and in fact, David and Allison Connor have been with most of this group since the fourth grade. Now, these seniors we're honoring today, they've given so much to our ministry, just like Holly talked about earlier. They've helped lead mission trips all over the country and all over the world. They've helped with middle school events. They've served in children's ministry, and they're ready for the next chapter in their lives. And every year, we also give seniors a Bible, and these Bibles we get for them have extra room in the margins that we're inviting uh, everyone in the church to go out uh, immediately following service and, and spend some time just highlighting your favorite Bible verse, writing a quick encouragement note. I still have my senior Bible from 2008, and I love from time to time just going back and reading some of the things that my church family that I grew up with uh, wrote in that Bible. So as I call your name, uh, come up on stage to be recognized. Seniors, uh, parents, this will be a great opportunity for pictures. And then afterwards, um, we're going to have a blessing. And then after the blessing, we're going to have all the seniors and their families come to the middle of the room. And then we're going to surround, the whole church is going to surround them. And we're going to have one final